This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, y'all, it's Brittany. Growing up, I was fashion-obsessed. I spent my Saturday afternoons tearing through fashion magazines at my local Borders bookstore. And I kept a secret sketchbook full of my own designs that that mostly just looked like Britney Spears costumes. Working in fashion would have been my biggest dream. But the truth is, even as a kid, I never saw myself in the fashion industry. And the biggest reason was because I rarely saw any Black people in the fashion industry. Aside from a few people here and there, fashion back then was white, white, white. And sure, things have gotten better over the years, but they haven't gotten that much better. And I've often found myself wondering why. I recently found something of an answer in an article on The Cut called What It's Really Like to Be Black and Work in Fashion by one of my favorite Black women in fashion, Lindsay Peoples-Wagner. She talked to more than 100 Black professionals about what it was like to work in the fashion industry, and they kept it real. Lindsay Peoples-Wagner shared some of those stories with Molly Fisher, the host of a new Gimlet podcast called The Cut on Tuesdays. Molly interviewed Lindsay as a part of an episode all about power. I liked it so much that I got up from my desk, walked 50 feet over to where Molly sits, and asked her if I could hear the whole uncut interview. And since she's kind of new here, she kind of had to say yes. That extended conversation between Molly and Lindsay went deep on what it's really like to work in the fashion industry. And as soon as I heard it, I knew it had to go on the nod. After you listen, go subscribe to The Cut on Tuesdays. Here's Lindsay Peoples-Wagner talking to Molly Fisher. Enjoy. We called it Black in Fashion, but I think the title of it was Everywhere and Nowhere, mm. uh, what it's like to be Black in fashion. Whether they were like starting out in industry or very successful, higher level kind of executive, they really all had very similar experiences, which was why it was such a crazy thing to constantly hear. Even, you know, someone like Sir John, who does Beyonce's makeup, has the same experiences as someone who was just getting into fashion and trying to get their foot in the door as a fashion assistant. We all have these common experiences of dealing with race on a daily basis. It's just really sad. And it's, I mean, depressing is the best word. (laughs) What were some examples of the kinds of common experiences you heard about? There are still some people who are blatantly racist, which I think that some people think that that's not a thing anymore. When when I say that, I think people think like, oh, like the KKK. And it's like, well, no, like I'm not saying that. I'm like, I'm not saying like people are at shoots in white hoods. What I'm saying is that like people <laughs> can still say really crazy things to you and not realize how racist it is. 
I'll actually give you a good tidbit. If anybody Please listens do. to this, they'll be like, what? <laughs> um, one, of, one of the quotes that was anonymous, I'll just come out and say that it was actually mine because I don't really care anymore. <laughs> but it was a quote about someone's boss asking them about slavery. What did the boss ask or what was the— I was basically in a car with, with this woman. And— she was just trying to come up with things to talk about. And she started asking me about my family. My dad is from Alabama. And she was like, oh, so does your family still live in Alabama? And I said, yeah, I go down there regularly. And then she went on to ask, you know, if my parents were, um, if my parents or my grandparents, like, were in how they felt about slavery since they were slaves. And I was confused because mathematically that's not possible. So I literally, I just remember saying, huh? And because <laughs> it's not possible. But I also was then like, and then she just kept kind of asking like, oh, did you, you know, does your family still live on the same plantation that they were slaves on? And I was like, my parents weren't slaves. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, that's not, like. That's insane. And we actually posted it on Instagram and I was looking at the comments, and there were so many people that were saying, like, oh, this is, you know, this is horrible, et cetera. This, this probably happened 50 years ago. And I'm like, I'm 27. <laughs> That's not possible. <laughs> A lot of people were like, well, maybe, you know, because people in fashion, they don't know anything about civil rights. I'm like, what? That has nothing to do with it. Like, it's just, I would never ask somebody that, even if I didn't know about civil rights movement or anything. Like, it was just, people made a lot of excuses. It was on. It was a weird conversation. I remember it so clearly because I kept replaying it. Like, should I have done something differently? And I just wasn't. I don't think I was. I was old enough, but I don't think that I was smart enough to really navigate the situation as I should have. Well, but, if you were a junior person in your early twenties, yeah, like you I know, probably I know, shouldn't but, be in a position of having to figure out how to navigate. A bizarro. I just hear my parents' voices in my head, and I know that they would have been like, get out of that car. Don't ever talk to this person ever again. Because that's just how I was raised. Like, my parents just raised me to just be, like, very proud of my blackness. And in that moment, I felt a little ashamed. And I think that that just does not register with me. At the time, I just did not say anything. And I was just kind of like, no, like, and just moved on to the next question. I mean, now, of course, I would check her. But, like, people don't understand how things like that stay with you and, like, change your opinion on, like, even what you want to do with your life or where you want to go. And it's hard. I think there's a lot of situations that people were telling me that just you want to be able to say something. But a lot of times you're just you're scared or you just don't want to have to, like, be that person all the time. Tell me more about what it was like to report the piece. Like, were people at all worried about talking to you? Like, were people hesitant to tell stories? Everyone was worried. Everyone was nervous. I had to do a pep talk with every single person. I've never encouraged this many people in my entire life. <laughs> it was like, that was really weird to me because yeah. it was also like, most of these people are older than me. And it was like, why are you worried? Like, you've been in this industry for 20 years. Why are you scared? What were they scared about? their bosses reading it and feeling some type of way. I mean, rightfully so. There has been a few people that were like, oh, people, you know, were reading between the lines on what I said and trying to figure out the timeline of who mm -hmm. I was talking about in this. A lot of people were just really nervous 
it's a weird, I don't know, I think it's a bit specific to Black people, but a weird issue where like a lot of Black people wanted to be included, but they also didn't want to just be included because they were Black. Hmm. It's like, you know, when you're a designer and you want to be just considered a great designer and not just during Black History Month. A lot of people started crying when I first got on the phone, mm. which I did not make them cry. It was just literally, I think just literally. <laughs> Lindsay, the, it was so mean of you. <laughs> no, it was literally just the thought of talking about it mm. that I think brought on so many emotions because a lot of these people, I think that a lot of them had really suppressed emotions about things. And I definitely started going to therapy more than I was before this piece because so many people just started crying out of nowhere. And I would, you know, just say, you know, what can I do? Like, you know, this is, we're all in this together. Like, we're all struggling. But I think a lot of people really just felt like things are slowly getting better, but when will this not be an issue? And I remember, like, my mom, she used to say to me all the time, like, oh, you know, I used to dream that racism wouldn't be a thing when you grew up. And I was, and I always thought that was so weird because I'm like, you were so optimistic. Like, that's, <laughs> what? Like, nobody thinks that. Like, and even now when I was thinking about everybody talking and about all these issues, it was like, man, it would be cool if I woke up tomorrow and it wasn't a thing. But I think that's why so many people were so emotional because— the reality of it is that we know that racism and, you know, just this power struggle of class and pedigree and everything is still going to be there. No and acknowledging it yeah. yeah, means confronting that reality. Yeah. What surprised you the most in reporting the story? How many people warned me that I would lose my job, which Whoa. I felt like wasn't really any of their business because I'm like, you don't pay my bills. But... Um, <laughs> But a lot of people did say to me, like, well, you know, you're really testing the waters with this. A lot of people said, you know, you need to keep your mouth shut. You're never going to be able to get a job. For people who maybe are not super familiar with the hierarchies of the fashion world, how would you describe the positions of real power and who occupies them? Like, what are the roles that you can have in the fashion world where you're really exerting an influence over what's out there? When I started in fashion, there was like a very specific hierarchy of, you know, you get into the closet, the fashion closet where like all the samples are trafficked and you're basically, you Samples know, are. Like samples of like clothing that models wear and that like people, celebrities wear on the covers of the magazine. And cool. so that's like your foot in the door. And from the get-go, that's just a hard position to A, get, because there are so many people in those positions who are just like friends of the editor-in-chief or friends of the fashion director, and they're like, oh, so-and-so needs an entry-level job out of school, like we're going to give it to this person. So when I started in fashion, I started in the closet, and you only get paid 9 or $10 an hour, so great money. That's already a bar to entry for a <laughs> yeah. lot of people, presumably, if you yeah. like have student debt or whatever. Yeah. From there, you're basically just expected to slave away and do whatever you're told. I mean, I've done, you know, I've walked people's dogs, <laughs> babysat their kids. You know, you do a lot of things. You're just like, well, I'm doing this and I want to prove to these people that I'm dedicated. It just closes the gate for people of color to even be able to get their foot in the door because it pays so little and because you're expected to, like, dress a certain way, look a certain way, have a certain pedigree in class. And so from the get-go, it's just 
messed up. (laughs) Um, It is. I mean, I remember, like, at that time we had to fill out timesheets by hand. And every week I would, like, chase down one of my bosses to make sure that she signed it because I had to get paid. I was working two other jobs. I was working at a Jewish restaurant in Tribeca on the weekends. And at night, during the week, I would change mannequins at the DKNY store. So I would go there at, like, 10 o'clock at night. You change the mannequins, like, do all the visual display or whatever. You end at, like, 1 in the morning. So I was exhausted. That's what you have to do to get your foot in the door. And I just remember, like, every week I would be, like, chasing down my boss and be like, hey, you have to sign this timesheet. And all the other girls would never get their timesheets signed. And I and I one day had the courage to ask one of them. I was like, why don't you guys, like, chase them? And she's like, I don't need the money. And oh it just, gosh. like, clicked. And I was like, oh, right, you're rich. I got it. <laughs> like, And then it all made sense because from the get-go, it was like, how is everybody in full Chanel and Prada and, like, $10,000 outfits? As an assistant, you're expected to look like somebody who makes $300,000 a year and you're getting paid $9 an hour. You have to get your foot in the door by looking like you are already <laughs> well within the door. Yeah, yeah exactly. And from there, you try to move up to being, you know, a fashion editor, someone who can, you know, style shoots or write stories. And then from there, you hope to be some type of director or editor-in-chief level. But there have been very, very few women of color editor-in-chiefs and fashion directors. So most people really haven't gotten past that, like, fashion editor level. What is the sort of rough profile of who tends to end up in a position of power in fashion? Most people in fashion come from wealth, which I don't I don't think is a bad thing. Like, I'm happy for you. But I think it would have helped me if people would have been more transparent mm-hmm. about it. A lot of times in my career, I knew that, okay, I'm smart. I've studied all of these things. You know, if somebody drops a designer reference, I know what they're talking about. If they ask me, you know, find some trends or anything like that, I knew that I was capable of doing that. I could do the work. Yeah, Yeah. but I didn't realize how much the politics of class and race would play into it. In hindsight, I was like, girl, you were not thinking this through. (laughs) But it became very clear to me because people that have money in fashion are really able to navigate the world in such a different space. I'll give you a good example. So when I was assisting... A stylist one time, she had mentioned, hey, you know, there's going to be really important people at this gala. You should totally go. There's some extra seats left. Like, casually mention this at a shoot while I'm steaming my life away with these clothes. (laughs) And I was like, okay, great. Like, I'd love to come. When is it? She was like, oh, you know, it's in in two weeks, so plenty of time to, like, find a dress. I was like, oh, great. Like, you know, I I think I actually have a black dress. It'll work. She's like, okay, great. I'll connect you with a guy. You know, it's only $10,000 a plate. Rewind. Yeah, exactly. So it's things like that where people say that very casually in fashion, where it's like, you should go to this thing and this is great connections for your career and all this. But it's like, who has $10,000 as an assistant to attend a gala? Like That's wild. But that's expected. And that's that's the norm. And I was so embarrassed, but I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't afford that. And she was like, oh, I'm sure you can, like, and it's like, no, I I don't have a sugar daddy. I don't have a father who's, like, related to somebody, J.P. Morgan Chase. Like, I don't, that's not within my reason. And she was just floored that I really didn't have that kind of money. But that's honestly, like, been the story of my life in fashion. People 
if you don't come from money, it's like, well, where did you come from? (laughs) How did you get here? (laughs) But where, though? (laughs) Yeah, literally. Um, People that I know went to those things, they are popular in fashion because they were able to make connections with these people and go to dinners with these people and become friends with these people that got them, you know, big work to style these huge campaigns. And I mean, it's it's nepotism, but it requires you to have wealth. Yeah. You get discouraged, but then you're like, no, I want, like, I deserve this. And I know that, like, there are certain people in power that shouldn't be in power. And I think that's a, it's a weird motivating, but also discouraging thing about fashion. I stay in it because I want to make change and I want to do all these things. And I know that they are, it's like such a power struggle between people actually want, like saying that they want something to be a certain way and and only actually wanting that to change on the surface level and people like me who actually are like really about it. Yeah. And it's just hard. I mean, it's honestly every day I'm like, why did you choose this? Like, <laughs> there's so many other things you could have done. Um, but well, walk me through that a little bit. Like, so what are examples of the kinds of places you see this playing out in terms of the the way people say they want things to be versus the way they act like they want them to be or like examples of times when you've sort of seen these power structures in action? I think it's it's just very clear, especially now with brands, everybody's gotten on the diversity, inclusivity train. Great. But then you see the work, you see the people that they choose to feature, you see who they choose to write profiles, you see like certain decisions that are made and you're like, you clearly have no people of color actually making decisions and you haven't actually like thought this through of how this would actually affect women of color. Brands nowadays, they just want to say like, okay, we've checked this box, we've done this, but like we're not actually committed to this. What do you mean by the diversity bandwagon? What is the thing that people have jumped on? Oh, everybody wants to say like, oh, well, you know, we have a few Black people working at our company. It's like, okay, well, I mean, congratulations. <laughs> but like, you. you know, it's a lot of times it's like, okay, but who are like the senior staff people? Yeah. Who are the people in control of making decisions? And that's why I feel like it's such a power struggle because it's a lot of times like you may have people of color on staff or you may have people of color in the building, but like... Every person that I talk to for Black in Fashion is like, oh, yeah, we have three Black people here and two Asian women and one Indian woman. But, you know, that's like counting people in the mailroom and that's like counting the receptionist. I mean, I've never had a Black boss ever. And I probably won't ever. Why not? I don't think it will happen because I think they... (laughs) Black women and women of color in general just have a hard time really getting into those senior roles that actually give them the tools and the power to make decisions. A lot of times when I've talked to a lot of women of color, they're like, oh, man, that position at such and such magazine would be so great. They go to the interview and it's like, okay, yeah, they want a person of color, but they're not actually like interested in investing in the ideas that I want to put forth. It's like, well, if you're not interested in me actually doing the work, then like why hire me? It's not just a box to check. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gotten into this because my mother has always told me like be what you needed when you were younger. And I always take that with me. I used to have like all these high fashion editorials on my walls and my mom just used to complain that there's no black people. And I'm like, well, there there was no like high fashion super editorials. And she was like, no, you need to like look at all this history. And so she started taking me to Ebony Fashion Fair. They used to have like mm-hmm. a fashion show with all these amazing designers and 
exposing me to the parts of high fashion that intersected with Black culture. And I really got into it because I was like, this is the kind of work that I want to make. And I want to make more work that speaks to me and makes me feel included yeah. and, and part of it. So, Lindsay, you now have a position of power. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> I'm now officially editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. It's, Congratulations. Thank you. It's the first brand that I interned at. Uh-huh. It's the first brand that I worked at. So it is a huge full circle moment. I was there when I was 17, starting yeah. out. So baby God, Lindsay. That's yeah. so tiny. I know. And I have videos and photos and they are embarrassing. I look a hot mess. <laughs> and it's uh, it's a miracle that they've even hired me because look at these pictures and you're like, this person doesn't know fashion. What are you wearing? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a little surreal because I just know that this kind of decision means a lot. Yeah. Um, when I wrote Black in Fashion, at the end of it, I was like, man, it would be really cool if some of these things change and yeah. then a change in my own career happened. And it's it's weird. It's wild. I'm excited, but I know that with bigger titles, obviously comes bigger responsibility. Yeah. But I'm, I'm equipped. I'm ready. I know yeah. that I am. So let's go. 